1: It is Thursday, October 15, 2020. This is a Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, joined shortly by managing editor Roger Hurst from the UK. But first, with the stories of the day, Haley Drasnan.
2: Hey, Ed, well, equities were in the red on Thursday. We saw the S&P 500, the Dow, and NASDAQ all down. Earlier this morning, U.S. Treasuries were rallying, particularly on the long ends of the curve. You can see that in two's 10 spread. That's the difference between yield on 10-year treasury bonds and two-year treasury notes. But throughout this afternoon, yields have floated upwards. There's so much influx right now, uncertainty with the upcoming US election, as well as the on-again, off-again stimulus negotiations. We're also seeing an uptick in coronavirus cases, particularly in the EU and the UK. In France, for example, they declared a state of emergency and there is uh, tighter restrictions for the Paris region and surrounding metropolitan areas. In the UK, London is on high alert and uh, those advised outside of your bubble um, are not to be in an indoor setting together. You know, we also don't have a timeline yet on what a vaccine looks like. So it seems like we'll be in some sort of a holding pattern for some time now, and we'll see that being reflected in the markets. Today, also new jobless claims, 1.3 million Americans filed unemployment benefits. When you look specifically at the numbers, more than 885,000 filed for state unemployment benefits last week. That is not seasonally adjusted. These claims were higher than expected and among the highest since August. I should also note that pandemic unemployment assistance continues to decline. As Ed points out in his credit write-down, Newsletter While production is humming along and people are being reemployed, there is still a torrent of new jobless claims. You know, people are dropping out of their workforce and falling through the cracks as it relates to uh, U.S. unemployment, and therefore recovery, I think, will be much slower. We're already seeing economic recovery right now, but at a much slower pace than we had earlier in the year. And I want to note that as we've seen on Real Vision in the last few weeks, you know, we shouldn't really make too much of the price action as indicative of the new cycle per se. I also want to uh, flag that Morgan Stanley is hosting solid earnings today. They're rounding out these third quarter earnings reports from the nation's biggest banks, weathering the pandemic uh, better than really expected. You know, this should be a tough time for banks. Low interest rates hurt their profits, and with millions unemployed and consumers strapped for cash, the credit card business is slow. The bank's trading business, though, has been helped by a soaring stock market. Morgan Stanley posted profits of 2.7 billion dollars and a revenue of around 11.6 billion dollars today. You know, an increase there, like J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, whereas Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and Bank of America they fell slightly in their earnings reports uh, that were released earlier this week. So, on that note, back to you, Ed.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: Thanks, Haley. And welcome back, Roger. Or should I say Bjorn? Hi, how's it going? How are you? Good, you know, uh, I just uh, we were talking about this just before we came on, and, and I, you, you don't see this, but uh, I'm looking at a picture now that hopefully we can put on the screen of Bjorn Borg uh, and John McEnroe. I think it looks like the 1982 uh, Wimbledon Final. and uh, Borg has almost the identical outfit on that you have right now, except he has a headband on, and his, his uh, jacket is redder than your jacket is.
3: That, that was a key thing. It was a bright red jack, and when I bought this vintage one, actually, so I could look like Bjornborg at a 50th birthday party a couple of years ago, and uh, wasn't red enough. It's too maroon to be authentic, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's like-
1: well, you know, um, let, let's talk about the uh, the economy and the markets because th- w- what I've seen so far basically is that we've been sort of in a holding pattern since uh, September. You know, things have sloshed about a bit. But there hasn't really been a whole lot of action in the markets uh, of, of note since uh, we had that sell-off uh, with the NASDAQ taking more than 10% down in early September. How are you seeing things right now?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. The, I mean, Europe's been in a holding pattern since June. So you know, whereas the US has kept on making these new highs until September, um, the European markets are still in effectively a bear pattern. So Ral talks about um, kind of classic crash patterns being three ways, where you sell-off and you have a rebound. Um, Europe, ex- excluding the DAX, which is a you know, slightly different index anyway, but euro is just over sixty-two percent rebound. FTSE is sixty-two percent, and IBEX is fifty percent. And then it's been going sideways for um, three months. And you know, with a bit of weakness today, it looks like those patterns are still in play. And you probably give them, you know, a seventy percent chance at this stage, given the shape of these patterns, that they will resolve to the downside. In the US, it keeps on obviously. Um, Kind of steamrolling these positions, but the U.S. equity market, led by those that very small handful of stocks, is a law unto itself in a way. Um, but you know, even there, I think the U.S. has been choppy. It looked like it was going to hold at the sixty-two percent level. The Nasdaq's actually broken that, so you know, who knows? It could easily be, you know, it could easily go back to to the highs. But ex the U.S., most other global equity markets are still pretty much in those three-stage bear market formations where we're still just in you know we the rallies have been held and have gone nowhere
1: yeah so I mean you're saying uh, if we look back from February to today uh, what we've seen actually is potentially a bear market rally in indices outside of the United States particularly in Europe and uh, we still don't know we're in this pattern this holding pattern now to figure out if they're going to break out uh, from the, that retracement level that you're talking about
3: yeah, and the other thing as well is that um, you know, who knows whether it's close election or not. I'm not going to get into that in the US, but generally when you get into um, election territory, often you'll find that the market goes sideways. And then once the election result is is known, regardless of which side, there is a relief because you don't invest when you don't know. And once you know, even if it's what you didn't expect, um, but at least you now know what it is, um, often the market will rise. Something that Binky Charter, who is, the, who is the strategist at Deutsche Bank, did work on going into the last election, why he said, well before the election result was known, um, he said, market will probably rally whoever gets in, because when you're going sideways into an election, you often just have a relief rally. Um, if the rest of the world, though, outside of the US, it's, there's just not been that same sense of connection between uh, what the central banks are doing and the equity market. It's been in, in other spaces. Really, it's been things like bonds in Europe, where the Italian tenure has, uh, has really come, come in. Um, towards that zero level, so it's a classic thing. Europe loves bonds; US loves equities.
1: Yeah, interesting that you would say that because I'm actually looking at a chart from Jim Reed of Deutsche Bank. You were mentioning Deutsche Bank in the last election, in this election, uh, Jim Reed he came out with a, a thing uh, earlier today, and it, you know the figure one in his report talks about fiscal measures announced in G20 countries in 2020, and the two top numbers are are Germany and Italy, and. It's, you know, Italy has. Uh, I think that their their bond yields in the ten year are about the same level as the U.S. I mean, that's remarkable given that people are talking about redenomination risk and and so forth. If you think back to uh, when the COVID crisis happened, uh, things have really calmed down markedly, and they're one of the ones who are really turning it on uh, from a fiscal perspective.
3: Yes, and you know the that we can call it a landmark, but that um, the agreement of the. 1.7 trillion budget package, and then the 750 billion rec- rescue package back in July, which really gave the euro rally versus the dollar um, that that last leg higher. Um, that uh, you know that that was where Europe was given, and um, the euro was given effectively a premium for um, agreement across the board, because within the eurozone there's often so little agreement and unity, and suddenly you had unity not just within the eurozone but across the EU. Um, and so Europe was re- rewarded for that. So when Europe did its extra fiscal, it got rewarded for being a, um, a fiscal of, of convergence rather than the divergence we've usually see. Because normally, if you do more fiscal, you'd expect your currency to weaken. But it was the opposite in Europe. I think that's run out of steam now. Um, you know, Europe, UK, second waves everywhere, um, not quite such sure footing. And the banks don't seem to be doing that well. But we've known that for, for years, really. Uh, and I think that, that'll kick back in.
1: Yeah, you know uh, that was where I was going next because the euro seems like uh, it, it's moved off of the high. Uh, last I saw it was at one seventeen handle, uh, and it, it, it's it's going marginally lower. W- what are you seeing in the currency markets, not just with the euro, but uh, things like the Aussie dollar, as an example?
3: Yeah, I think I mean Europe, The euro probably can get back to around about I think one fifteen, and that'd be a normal pullback. And this is something Julian Brigid has been talking about, which is. His view is obviously still overall, he still expects that the dollar um, is going to be next year, but obviously the euro can have a pullback. So just a normal pullback under those conditions after having that that um, strong run. Um, I still feel that we're in this environment where you know, when we got to 120 on the euro, the European policymakers started to make a lot of noise, and we've seen the euro pulling back from there. And this is that we talked about this last week, is that The difficulty for the European market or for Europe is that if you get a strong currency, then it really makes the equity market underperform on a local basis um, because it's an exporting market. So you don't want that. And if they want inflation, and remember, we've seen these negative numbers from European HICP inflation. That's not what they want. So they they don't want um, a strong euro. And we got to those levels where they made the noises. Now, do do we get a, a, is this a reversal now and more proper strength in the dollar or is this just, you know, we went too far and we're giving some of it back? I still feel that the asymmetric risk for the dollar is the upside, even if the grinding risk is to the downside. So I'd much rather play the dollar as, as a long as a hedge, because if the dollar shoots higher, we'd probably have a problem for risk assets. If the dollar continues down, i.e. weakness, that's good for risk assets. But so far it's really been against G ten and particularly the Europe, European currencies and the euro.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you saw the uh, Jeffrey Gunlack video, uh, but uh, he was saying very similar things in terms of he's actually const- he's a um, a long term dollar bear. He sees the dollar going lower over the long term, but you know in terms of tactical trading right now, he thinks that you know we've hit that level you know in the ninety three range, and uh, we you know that's pretty much sort of a stop for for where we are, and he see- sees it going higher if anything at this point.
3: Yeah. And, and look, if you look if you look at things like positioning, CFTC futures positioning on the euro versus the dollar, it's still at an extreme level, the highest level it's ever been. And over the last 15 years, generally, we've seen the euro has been in a very wide ranging downtrend. But within that, we've had these big swings up and down. And those have been coincidental with big swings up and down in positioning, which you can understand. But what you'd notice is that when positioning turns, um, or when the euro turns, which I don't know which leads which, probably the euro turns and the positioning unwinds. But when it, uh, when it does unwind, and this is a record level, we've normally seen at least a 10% pullback on the euro. So I could easily see it getting back below 110. And you know, markets are always there to, you know, they, they, they'll catch a lot of people out. It's not going to be a simple march in one direction. And it's worth looking at that euro chart because it's clearly been in a downtrend. But the massive swings of that would all be career-threatening swings if you're on the wrong side of them.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, uh, one question that's on my mind, uh, just going back to the Deutsche Bank and the Jim Reed thing, is how are you looking at uh, what's going on in the U.S. right now? Because you mentioned uh, the relief rally. Uh, the way here's how I'm thinking about it. Really, you know, I'm thinking economics lead uh, the politics, meaning that. You know, on a day-to-day basis, really there aren't. You know, the the house view at RV I think is generally speaking that it's not about the politics. Really, it's about the economics. It's about the underlying fundamentals and that, uh, from a macro perspective, driving things forward. But uh, uh, on a day-to-day basis, it's just a, you know a random walk. But um, you know, there's some fundamentally different outcomes uh, coming out. From the election potentially. Do you think, uh, sitting there where you are, that that has any impact over the medium term in terms of, uh, you know, after the relief rally, uh, what happens in the markets?
3: I think that the one thing that I focused on for the US election, which has been the fact that both sides are going to do more fiscal and therefore more central bank involvement as well, which is a trend that we're seeing across nearly all developed markets. And it's a trend which is accelerating now, like a lot of things have done through COVID. It's an acceleration of an existing trend. Now, the old trend was basically to focus on monetary pre-COVID. And it was basically monetary from the central banks, so the monetary authorities, whilst the fiscal authorities, the governments, were actually, if anything, looking at austerity. But that wasn't working, which is why the Greek government got kicked out in 2015. What's changed now is that people were starting to look at more fiscal opportunities, even prior to COVID. And I always say the UK was the clear one with the Conservatives getting in and saying, the sort of things you always expected a Labour Party to say, and I think this is the thing: is that on the other side of the ele- election, I think we're going to get more fiscal. I think what markets are trying to price in, and when we've had these little steepings of the curve, and we've had you know a few kind of waivers here, is how quickly and, and in what size. And I guess if people thought there was going to be um, a kind of a Democrat clean sweep. It might be bigger size and sooner, but the reality is both sides are going to do it. And it's why. I keep on saying this, but it's why you still look at gold as being a great opportunity. Because, on the other side of nearly every election in every country over the next four years, you're probably going to find a government that wants to do more fiscal spending, and look on its central bank as being the people who can facilitate that by buying up those bonds.
1: Yeah, and you know this this part about gold and uh, and the central bank sort of converges with the concept of the steepening yield curve. You know, from my perspective, you were talking about the move index uh, being higher. I'm thinking about it in from a um, uh, financial repression uh, point of view. I was having a uh, a back and forth with a hedge fund, a fund friend of mine, and we were talking about the likelihood that we have uh, interest rates that are um, lower than inflation for a long period of time, and also lower than nominal GDP, so that you know, not the the GDP to um, to debt ratio for uh, the countries can actually go lower. Uh, that that financial repression can that really work um, if you have a steepening yield curve? How how steep can the yield curve really get uh, w- uh, when the, the objective actually is is to uh, either have growth or have inflation, one or the other or both?
3: I think it's it's um, I think it's the distortion of all um, going to be the distortion of all price discovery because I think inflation will go up. Um, so when I say that, I think. There is, there is a, they will try and push inflation higher, but the risk is going to be that bond yields do not perform in line with inflation because you'll get yield curve control. Because given the level of debts at the corporate level, the government level, and increasingly now the household level have all exploded, although households are better off than they were during the financial crisis twelve years ago, but you've got the point where central banks are, and you know the, the policymakers can't let yields go too high. So the big risk is that inflation will run hot over the longer term. And, and if you think being short bonds is going to be the right trade, you would be sorely disappointed because you know, where is the level on the 10-year that will blow the whole thing up? Maybe it's 2% now. Maybe it's 1.5. It was 3.25% in 2018. They can't let these things get there. So I think they will suppress yields there. And it will make the environment incredibly hard to price. And again, it goes back to, OK, well, what's your what's your safety valve for the inflation play? Well, it's probably precious metals. For some people would say it's Bitcoin. but the point is that being short bonds might seem like the obvious trade, but that's the bit where the central banks have been doing QE. It's the bond market which they are explicitly involved in. And if you started to get a steeping and that steepening of the curve saw the move index shoot higher from the all-time lows, it would start to undermine the work that they're doing. And the one thing they want to keep is a lid on volatility. And they will. I think that they will do that and they will come in in size. It feels like the yields. Yields, in particular, are getting too high, or the yield curve starting to move too aggressively.
1: Yeah, and when when you talk about the yield curve moving, and uh, and also gold uh, selling off, and uh, to a certain degree, and obviously, I know long-term you're you're bullish on gold. Some of that has to do with uh, um, not just um, the fact that inflation is going up, because you mentioned that it's actually going down in many cases, um, but real yields actually going up. Uh, and there's only so far that can go. How are you thinking about that?
3: Yeah, I sort of when I look at real yields, I have a very basic, basic um, real yields that I look at. So, for instance, on Bloomberg, you can break down the U.S. ten-year into it's got the break-even ex- inflation expectation, that's been going up. Um, it's been going up since March. Um, then you've got the nominal yield, which is the actual yield, which is at 75 basis points. That inflation break-even is at 1.75, and then. Take one from the other, and you get you can have the real yield on the 10-year, which is around about minus 100. Now, it might be that we get a short-term rollover in inflation expectations. And this has been the interesting thing, is the Fed has been pushing up inflation expectations by buying in the tips market. So it's trying to make everybody believe that there is inflation coming. Now, they might be right, um, but the inflation will come from the fiscal, not from the Fed buying up the tips market to make us think that the inflation is coming. I think what we the risk now is that we've had this move. Um, we might get a little bit of a pullback in things like cost push inflation, something Julian Briggins talked about. You know, Remember, we had that big spike in, in beef prices when all the abattoirs closed down. It's that sort of thing, which is still in, in some of the system, which could roll out. If inflation expectations drop, then real yields will pop. That's actually negative for gold in the short term. But it's kind of when I look forward and I think, OK, will inflation pick up? Maybe. Do I think yields, nominal yields will pick up? I think there's going to be buying in there and potentially yield curve control. My guess is still real yields risk is to the downside, and not the upside, um, because we could you know if we get the fiscal in size, big enough size, then yes, it will. Inflation will come through. If, if everybody's account was credited with ten grand every month, ten thousand dollars every month, we will get inflation in the short term.
1: Right. Yeah. You know the the ability to credit accounts in mass if you really want to uh, to uh, create inflation, just credit accounts. I mean, th- there is the potential to be able to do that. Just buying assets isn't isn't the the, the key. it's definitely crediting the account.
3: yeah, it's crediting the accounts and then you completely destroyed every incentive out there and you you destroy the system. I mean it becomes a one-off payment where you know, capital is dynamic and you destroy the dynamism of capital. and people might say, well, capital isn't as dynamic as it should be. Well, that's because you've had twelve years of QE already, which is completely, distorted where capital should be, but that's a problem. So yeah, the danger is that we get uh, accounts credited. It will look good for a few months, maybe even a year, but when you come on the other side of it, you've destroyed incentives and future long-term growth is destroyed. Zombification, not of companies, but of whole economies comes from that.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipsyn Ads. Go to com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: Well, when you talk about zombification, the first thing that comes to mind are the banks. And, you know, I'm thinking about uh, um, Japan first and foremost in terms of uh, net interest rate margins over the longer term because what we're seeing now in terms of US banks uh, that just released, it's not good. We talked about this over the past two days uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday in the RVDB. Uh, I think five banks uh, came out with their earnings. We had Goldman, we we had uh, Bank of America, Citi, Wells Fargo, we had JP Morgan. Across the board, all of those companies in the U.S. uh, were showing um, net interest margins that were lower than what you would expect. But I would expect that in Europe, where you are, that that zombification of the banking sector is already more advanced. I mean, what's what's going on with your banks, and how are you thinking about the U.S. banks?
3: Yeah, I mean, they've been. I mean, European banks have been a horror show for a long time um, because of these reasons. And one of the things about the European market is it tends to be more. Um, banks are very much at the center via the loan market. So corporate loans are very key. In the US, at least in the large cap space, the capital markets, so the bond markets, are often the preferred tool. Um, and so I think Europe, You know, we've seen this. The rebound in the European banks post-COVID was appalling. And they retested those not that long ago. Now, they've had another rebound since. I think they got to a new all-time low in September, marginally on the SX7P, because HSBC is now taking that one lower. But European banks, shocking. I mean, there's nothing good around there. Um, Negative yields across most of the curves and flat yield curves as well. And they look like they could break lower. If you look at the German two-year, 10-year yield curve, it's at a level which we've seen about four or five times before. Break through there, and you'll make new lows. In the US, the distinction I make there is that those which are the most levered to the capital markets, so these are the trading houses, such as the Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, the JP Morgans, They've at least got a conduit to make money versus I think Wells Fargo's numbers were poorer because they're much more real um, commercial real estate um, less the capital markets. And when you go into things like the regional banks in the US, they're much more um, linked into the um, linked into, again, local real estate markets and smaller businesses, which are the ones that have been struggling to get loans. and this is where those if lending standards are tight, which they are, Raul's talked about that quite a lot with Julian. Then, if you're dependent on the loans market, you're kind of screwed. But if you can tap the bond market, which the big companies can do, and facilitated by the big banks, they'll do better. But bond yields in the US dropped from two and a half down to 75 basis points. There is a Japanification of the US yield curve going on today that we're all in denial about up until a year ago.
1: Yeah. You know, um, before I ask you another question, you just mentioned. uh, Raul and Julian, I, you're, aren't you doing a, uh, a sort of a, 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 a education class of what where they're coming from? Without giving away too much of that, tell me a little bit about that, uh, what uh, what you're doing on that.
3: Yeah, we're doing an explainer. So some of the uh, concepts that they have, I mean, obviously they rattle through a whole load of things. And uh, what we're going to do is just try and break some of those down and, and explain them in some of the ways that we've just done today, which is you know, explain what real yields are. Explain what yield curve control is. So some of this will be fairly sort of simple stuff. But you now we've got people of all um, levels watching, and so what we want to do is ma- maximise the number of people who can understand and follow what Julian and Raoul do. And they they often talk about concepts which, even when I'm trying to explain, them, I'm kind of thinking, God, you know, there are there, there's so many different ways of looking at these that even I'm not going to get there. But but hopefully by talking about these things. We'll open up that debate and and you know in various things like on the exchange we can talk about these a lot more. Excellent, you know, and the question
1: that I had for you before we wrap it up had to do I I saw a a chart uh, that I thought was interesting. This was from S and P Global. Uh, It's the global corporate default summary. I was talking to Jack about this yesterday, and the thing that stood out for me in this particular chart was the twelve-month trailing speculative grade default rate differential. Between the U.S. and Europe, the U.S. was coming in. This is through. Uh, I think I'm looking at the data now. It says uh, through the end of September, um, 6.3% in the U.S., but only 4.3% in Europe. And the look, the go forward look is actually uh, also the U.S. leading Europe in terms of defaults. Do you have any thoughts on why that's the case?
3: So I think there's a number of reasons behind it. I mean. Again, this sort of in the U.S. you've had this haves and have not for a start, which has been, um, you know, if you can tap the corporate bond market, you can get the zombification of companies. So actually, there's a lot of companies that should have gone bust that aren't going bust. But then, as you go down the scale towards the private businesses or the, the family-owned businesses, etc., the smaller businesses, they're the ones that are um, reliant on the loans market, where they might not be able to get those those loans, and therefore um, there's a high risk of bankruptcy there. In Europe, it's a much more loans-based market, and that from the outset, the ECB, from you know, from quite a while ago, was out there trying to calm that loans market down. And then the other thing, which I think is is actually a, a reason why Europe's zombification is a bit more worrying than the U.S. is that the U.S. went to support the U.S. went for providing benefits but didn't support jobs. You had that massive um, decline in jobs, massive unemployment, uh, very fast, rapid unemployment numbers. In Europe, the strategy was to support the jobs, keep the jobs going. So it looks like the unemployment levels are are better in Europe, which they are in absolute terms. But does that mean that the security of those jobs? Is? And I think what you're seeing is that Europe kicks the can better than the US. The US tends to deal with things a little bit more readily, which means that you should get higher levels of um, bankruptcies sooner in the US than in Europe. But what's happened over the last six months is an acceleration of some trends whereby if you're you know, supporting jobs which are never coming back, then when you stop supporting them, they will disappear. So you've still got the problem, you just pushed it down the road. Or you have to support them ad infinitum, which is the zombification of, of the European system. So I think that's all it is. You know, I think it's just that US, US tends to be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more capitalist and a little bit more quicker. They fix their banks quicker than Europe did. They went early and then find their banks later. Whereas Europe went out and find its banks before they'd recovered. So Europe never recovered on its banks. I think that's, you know, that's the problem. And I think the US is just ahead just of the game compared to Europe.
1: Yeah, I mean, JP Morgan's a perfect example of that. I have a little anecdote to tell you. I don't know if I've told you this story before, but it, it fits perfectly in line with what you're talking about. So back uh, 20 years ago or so, I was in the nascent uh, European high-yield market because we wanted to take speculative grade that market over to Europe. It was already flourishing in the US. Uh, I was working at Deutsche Bank. And I, you know, because I speak German, I worked with the relationship managers at uh, all of the uh, big regional offices in in um, in Germany. And you know, these guys, uh, they wanted to get uh, a ton of these uh, these loans off of Deutsche Bank's balance sheet because they were ta- taking up capital space and get them into the high yield market. But when you went to these companies and you you had them open the kimono and take a look at the numbers they were just absolutely horrific i'm you know the debt to ebitda ratios were just astronomical for some of these companies and you know we were like how are we going to get these companies into the high yield market high yield i mean the 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 amount that you have to pay uh, even if uh, someone actually wanted to do the deal would be uh astronomical and of course half of these deals never happen so i think it goes to what you're talking about is that this zombification, this evergreening of loans, is definitely taking place, and that means that you know you're going to have slower growth because those companies are going to stay in business when they're actually not really uh,
3: that great. Yeah, I mean it's it's happening you know all over the developed markets. I mean Japan's been doing this for ages. banks have always been have been zombies for you know, decades, really now. Um, and I think that that's the real issue for Europe is that you know Europe's doing this and. Well, you know, one of the things we forget is that the European economy might be as big as the U.S., but the U.S. is effectively, in terms of its capital markets, is concentrated because it's one capital market. Whereas we've got a euro capital market, a non-euro capital market, a sterling capital market, uh, and they're not really—they never really developed. So it's very fragmented, which means that it's just not as efficient, and therefore we've not seen the development of that capital market side. And you know, the best companies in Europe, particularly continental Europe, are held in private hands, and you know they probably can tap into these things. They're a little bit more nimble. Um, most of Europe, you know, there's not any big cap names in Europe that are world leaders, or at least have been developed into world leaders over the last ten years. Even the tech companies here have lagged the U.S. by a country mile. So the European market is just one which is more fragmented. Um, it's got lots of existential issues still coming up, um, and as a result, I think it's just there is an inefficiency there. And at the same time, policymakers want to hold on to what they can, but they want they want the economy to hold on to keep it going in the hope that something is better. But nearly always, ultimately, Europe, Japan, everywhere, it ultimately looks to sort of the US to effectively do the heavy lifting through the Fed. And I think the central bankers have reached the limits of their powers. It now needs the fiscal authorities. And for me, the fiscal authorities getting heavily involved. That's also a zombification on a global basis.
1: Yeah. You know, uh before we get some last thoughts, let me just point out that we've been talking to you as if you are in Europe. Uh some people in the UK dispute that, but I just want to point out that we're thinking of it that way. Um so uh, any last thoughts uh from you before we wrap up?
3: No, I mean, look, the market here is is I think we're all on on we're waiting, aren't we, for November the 3rd. And so I think it's going to be a very it's choppy. Um but it's very hard to really take direction. Um, Aussie dollars, one to watch again, just a bit choppy. Got to seventy-two. Look to be testing seventy. If the Aussie dollar convincingly breaks below seventy, I think we get a longer period of risk off. But the problem is, at the moment, the Aussie dollar is moving coincidentally to other risk assets. So it's not like we're getting an early warning system. But um, Europe, it's still in a bear market um, overall pattern. And European banks, as we've mentioned, for me, they're they're on a very slow. Death, you know, and it's—it's it's, nothing's really going to change that. I don't think you can rescue them without a complete and unexpected change to the global outlook, and that's not going to happen. That's cuckoo land.
1: Well, we'll leave it there. Great uh, information, as always, Roger. Pleasure to talk to you. Good to speak
3: to you, Ed, as well. Thanks very much. Uh-huh.